Well, I'm Richard Harris, um, Senior Pastor of Christ EPC in Houston, Texas. Um, thank you for your prayers and those of you who've you know, sent money as well to Houston. Thanks a lot. Um, still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, we were uh, going to be hosting Presbytery this weekend at our church in Houston, and we were excited about that. And I invited um, Ligon Duncan, Chancellor of Foreign Theological Seminary, to come and to, to share, uh, to give a, a lecture to the Presbytery on ministering in this current cultural moment. And then he was going to preach in the evening worship service. And um, then whenever uh, you know, we decided, thought best to uh, say, no, we won't host. You know, there are lots of hotel rooms that are needed for other people right now. And it was, you know, the Presbytery was moved to here in San Antonio. I, I was amazed um, that, uh, that Dr. Duncan was willing to change his flight, fly here for this today. Tomorrow he's got to fly back uh, to Houston for meetings that he already had lined up and preaching in another church on Sunday. And so um, if, if you do not know Ligon Duncan, he is, um, like I said, Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. He is a, he's a visionary leader. He is a world-class theologian. He is a very faithful churchman, and he really is a pastor of pastors, and so I am honored to consider him a friend and honored that he is willing to be with us uh, today and this evening. So please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan. It's great. It's great to be with you today. I'm thrilled to be in San Antonio and uh, thankful for the labor and ministry that you're doing in Houston and the surrounding areas right now. Uh, just a few words by way of introduction. You may not know it, but three EPC congregations host three of the campuses of Reformed Theological Seminary. So not only Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Houston, but Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, and then Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And one of my presidents is an EPC minister, Scott Redd, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Some of you have maybe been around the EPC long enough to know that Luther Whitlock was one of the early champions of the movement that became the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and attended all of the early General Assemblies of the EPC and continued to do that to his retirement. And so we have always had uh, warm and strong connections with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So when Richard told me that things were moving to San Antonio, I said, of course I'll be in San Antonio. So I will fly from San Antonio to Houston and we'll do the rest of our program that we were planning to do on, uh, on Saturday and on Sunday in Houston, but I'm glad to be with you today. Now, I've been asked to speak on the issue of ministering in this cultural moment. And um, as, as pastors and church leaders, we have to kind of keep our eye on what's happening in our local setting and with our own congregation and then in the larger culture too. So that's what I want to try and help you do. Uh, think a little bit about the larger cultural setting and how that might impact what you're trying to do in the local congregation in the course of your regular ministry. Uh, we are living in very interesting times. We have been experiencing one of the biggest cultural changes in the history of the world in the last 45 to 50 years. And that, that is seen 
most especially and specifically in the transformation in the realm of sexual ethics. You know, in, in 1970, if you had been a, um, an upper-level manager in a Fortune 500 company and you had discovered a, a colleague involved in a same-sex affair and you had reported that uh, to the authorities in that company, that colleague would have been immediately dismissed uh, from his or her job. Uh, today, if you were to do that, you would be immediately dismissed from your job. Now, that's happened in 50 years, and that's just a, that's just a picture of what has happened in terms of the, uh, the revolution of, of sexual ethics in our culture. A lot of people don't realize it, but the first state-approved same-sex marriage in the history of the world happened 17 years ago. And, and, and until the year 2000, there had never been a government-sanctioned same-sex marriage in the history of the world. Now we live in a culture where for you to question that calls into question the legitimacy of your participation in our society. I don't know whether you followed the story just a few months ago, the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party in Britain uh, is a, or was, a Catholic Christian. And as such, um, he was committed, at least at a personal level, to Roman Catholic teaching on sexuality. Now, in Parliament, he had consistently voted in favor of every measure allowing for and legalizing same-sex marriage, rights for same-sex individuals, protections for same-sex uh, individuals from bullying and, and other forms of abuse and discrimination, but then it was discovered that his private opinion was that same-sex marriage was not right even though he had consistently voted for it in Parliament at every point, he was drummed out of office because his private belief, which he had never acted on in his public voting, was out of accord with the predominant cultural sense of ethics. So that, that's what I'm talking about. We, we, Toto, we do not live in Kansas anymore. It's a, it's a very, very different world. And for most of us in this room, we're a little bit older than a lot of the people in our congregation. And if we're 40 and up, our attitudes on this are very different than those who are 40 and below. Do not think that your young people agree with you on this. They do not. And don't, by the way, don't, one of the things I'm going to say to you today is don't panic about that. Don't panic that your young people don't agree with you about this. In part, they have been reared in a cultural environment which makes them not even be able to relate to the cultural environment that you were reared in if you're above 40 years old. I mean, I, I'm 56, and I can remember a time when I thought that I was somewhat in the cultural mainstream. Now, I, I probably wasn't, but at least I felt like it. 
Young people under 40 in our churches today have never remembered a time when they were in the cultural mainstream. So a, a, a young person 40 and under who walks into your church to walk across the threshold of your church door, they've already made a countercultural move to walk into a church where the Bible is believed, where people believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, uh, where the gospel is proclaimed, where doctrine uh, is important. They have already made very significant countercultural counter moves just to step across your church door, but they have also never been a part of the culture in which they have felt like they were a part of the majority. Uh, they, they've always been acutely aware of being a cultural minority. And one of their favorite strategies for coping with that is clamping up and keeping quiet on all the areas where they are out of accord with a larger culture because they want to survive. And that, that's, a, that's a very natural and understandable sort of way of coping with this cultural situation. So I want to talk a little bit about how we got here and some things that are different now from the way they were even 20 years ago, and then how we might want to respond to that as we think about this at sort of a macro and a local level, sort of a big picture cultural level and then in the local congregation. So let me take us all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century, so about the year 1800. That's a big time in Western culture because at that time there, there's the rise of rationalism in the German universities and really throughout the 19th century, throughout the 1800s, the German universities were considered to be uh, the epitome of academic and scholarly achievement in the Western world and if you were in the United States or if you were in Britain or in other places you wanted to send your best and brightest to Germany because uh, the kind of academic and scholarly inquiry that was going on there, the kind of thinking that was going on there was considered to be the cutting edge in that day and age. And even at the very beginning of the 19th century, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the son of a reformed pastor, had experienced a crisis when he went to university. Uh, he encountered what, what, you know, today we would call um, rationalism and skepticism in the German universities, and he imbibed a good bit of it. For instance, did you know that... Uh, among the things that offended the mind of young Friedrich Schleiermacher as a university student uh, was penal substitutionary atonement. He, he, after, after hearing his professor's lecture, after thinking through the issues of, of what, it, what it meant for Jesus to be a sin bearer bearing the penalty for sin administered by the Father, he, reject, he rejected as abhorrent the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. It should not surprise us today when we look around and see evangelicals rejecting penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, th this, is, this has been a trend that has been fostered by our culture for more than two centuries, and that was one of the things that got Schleiermacher. But Schleiermacher also was a deeply pious man who wanted to see Christianity not only survive in this kind of modern, rationalistic, skeptical 
environment, but he wanted to see it grow and thrive. And so he uh, authored a series of addresses uh, called uh, Lectures on Christianity to its Cultured Despisers. And uh, his, his basic appeal was this. He, he, he said, if Christianity is going to survive and thrive, we have got to change the message because the message no longer works with this kind of a sophisticated intellectual cultural audience. And, and you know, again, he had in mind the German intellectual class of the universities. And he saw the, the hardened skepticism and their rejection of traditional Christianity. He felt the pull of that himself, rejecting many, uh, if not all, of the traditional doctrinal formulations of Christianity. And so he thought that the only way that Christianity could be saved would be by changing the message. And if, if you will remember, what, what Schleiermacher attempted to do was to relocate the core of Christianity from the realm of truth and fact and doctrine to experience. You know, the, the essence of religion, he, he said, was uh, the sense of absolute dependence upon God. And, and so he tried to relocate the basis of Christianity uh, in experience. It, 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 again, he, he wasn't in a tavern somewhere in Berlin uh, plotting, how can I destroy Christianity? No, he was, how can I make Christianity appealing to a culture that has re rejected the doctrine of traditional Christianity, has rejected the truth claims of Christianity, is not amenable to the message of the gospel, especially penal substitutionary atonement and the inerrancy of scripture and things of this nature. And so he's trying to figure out how to make Christianity appealing to its cultured despisers. And he relocates Christianity in the realm of experience. Interestingly, Almost all of the theological moves that we have seen in the last 200 years can be traced right back to Schleiermacher. Um, so some people go to Schleiermacher and they emphasize that sort of the emotional experiential side of him. Others go to Schleiermacher and embrace the more rationalistic skeptical side uh, of him and and those two interestingly evangelicals sometimes will embrace his kinds of experientialism as a replacement for uh, historic Christian affirmation of doctrinal truth and very often uh, hardcore liberal theologians will em embrace the more rationalistic and skeptical side of him. Really everybody has been interacting with Schleiermacher for the last 200 years whether they realize they have or not. But what's so interesting about that is if you if you look at the rise of liberalism in Protestant mainline churches in the Western world, I'm thinking especially of Britain and America, the heyday, you know, by, by, the, by the late 19 century, by the late 1800s, uh, the, the heyday of liberalism is beginning to, to, to sort of break surface and it continues all the way into the 1950s after the Second World War. You know, this is when the Christian Century magazine 
is started by mainline Protestant liberals in the early 20th century. And listen to the triumphalism of the title. This is the Christian century. You know, it's almost a secular liberal post-millennialism. You know, we have arrived. We are here to announce this century belongs to us. You know, there's a great deal of optimism going on in the liberal Protestant world. And, and interestingly, this is the move that they've made. They, they are suspicious of the supernatural truth claims of Christianity, but they like Christian ethics. So, so they don't like Jesus' miracles. Boo, bad miracles. That's, that's superstitious. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's pre-scientific, uh, that's, uh, that, that it's not plausible to modern, rational people. Miracles are a leftover from a superstitious religious age. We now live in an age, this is sort of Boltmann's spin on, uh, on uh, Schleiermacher, we live in an age of, of toasters and ovens and modern appliances. We can't believe in miracles anymore. So supernaturalism is out. Doctrine is out. Uh, they're, they're, it's not so much that they're interested in uh, denying specific doctrines as they are in denying the importance of doctrine. And so, for instance, the, when, when the Unitarian Universalist Church begins in the 19th century, what is one of its early mottos? Deeds, not creeds. Now, you will sometimes hear evangelicals say that, but that actually started with the Unitarian Universalist liberals in the 19th century, and you hear what they're saying. It really doesn't matter what you believe. It's all about what you do. It's all about how you live. And hence, by the early 20th century, theological liberalism could be identified by those who would affirm this statement. Christianity is not a doctrine, it is a way of life. That is exactly, by the way, what J. Gresham Machen was attacking in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And with, with Luther, do you remember, by the way, Luther, 500 years beforehand, had said this, Christianity is not a way of life, it is a doctrine. Isn't that interesting? Luther was all about doctrine. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean he didn't care about how people lived. But he, he believed that if you didn't understand God's sovereign saving grace in justification, it messed up everything else. And so for him, that doctrine was supremely important in how people live. And so Christianity is not about saving yourself. It's not about living a religious life so that you won't go to hell. Christianity is about encountering the grace of God in Jesus Christ, receiving the forgiveness of sins, and being transformed by that grace so that you are a new creation and you do live a new life. But it's about something that God's grace does in you. It's not about sort of trying to be good, living a wonderful life, you know, trying to uh, you know, impact your culture, or impact your community or whatever as some sort of way of gaining brownie points with God. Well, so you see this whole tendency is for theological liberalism to downplay doctrine. And, and by, the, by the 1950s, 
theological liberalism has, has virtually won the day in the mainline Protestant denominations. And we, we represent uh, movements that came out of, of that particular period. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're part of churches that said, you know, no, we're with Luther on this. Doctrine does matter. The Bible is true. Miracles are true. Penal substitutionary atonement are true. That's why we're sitting here in San Antonio together today talking to one another because we're part of sort of the, the remnant movement that um, still thought, thinks that doctrine matters. Well, so if, if I could sum up the attitude, the attitude is supernaturalism, bad. Doctrine, uh, either wrong or irrelevant. Christianity is an ethical system. Christianity is about a way of life. So Protestant liberals of the late 19th century and, and, and up to the middle of the 20th century tended to not like historic Orthodox Christian doctrine, not like historic Orthodox Christian supernaturalism, but like Christian ethics. We now live in a culture where the culture doesn't like Christian ethics either. Isn't that fascinating? For, for 60-something years, um, you, could, you could be a Christian in the public sphere in the United States of America and have non-religious people and other religious people respect you and think highly of you because the Sermon on the Mount was thought highly of. I mean, can you remember the, um, in, in the, in the uh, middle of the 20th century, uh, Gandhi could be speaking highly of the Christian ethical system. You may, Gandhi uh, is, is uh, speaking, you know, if, if only Christians followed the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a, a, a much better place. That's very much the attitude of the older Protestant liberalism. But since the 1950s, there has been this increasing discomfort with the Christian ethical system, especially in the area of sexuality. So that the culture now doesn't look at Christianity and say, you know, Orthodox Christians are a superstitious lot. They believe in miracles, but I've got a high regard for their ethics. Uh, or it, they don't look at, the, at Christianity and say, you know, Christians have some crazy doctrines that, that only idiots could believe. But I sure do have to admire their ethical system. Now, in our day and time, the culture looks at our ethical system and says, and this is the secular culture, it looks at our ethical system and it says, that ethical system is inferior to my personal ethics. My personal ethics provide for a broader, richer experience of freedom, of happiness, and of human flourishing than the Christian ethical system does. And so, whereas once upon a time, the liberal culture looked at Christianity and dismissed its doctrine and its supernaturalism and admired its ethics, now they look at even our ethics and look down on us condescendingly. 
That's the world that you're ministering in now. Now, 20 years ago, uh, my, my friend, uh, Bruce Ware, who uh, r- currently is a professor at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, talking about the whole sea change which was already happening then in the area of sexual ethics, said this, and I think it was true when he said it. He said, the, the world isn't concerned about your doctrine but it's very concerned about your ethics. They don't care what you believe as long as you keep it to yourself. But when you begin to impose your ethical system on them, then they are deeply concerned about your Christianity. Now, I think he was exactly right 20 years ago, but guess what? It's worse now. You remember the story I just told you about the British politician? What has happened is people that are arguing for a new definition of sexuality in our cultures have found out that what you believe has something to do with your ethical system. (laughs) And they've realized that the only way that they will ever break down traditional ethical models of marriage and of sexuality is to change what people believe and so the the culture is actually after your young people to reach into their hearts right now and change what they believe they they realize that they will never be able to make lasting changes with regard to uh, freedom and uh, happiness in the, in, in, in the expression of sexual liberty uh, in our civil society unless they can change the doctrine uh, that, that people hold to. And that, you know, they have in mind not only Roman Catholics, but conservative Protestants like us, uh, where the, the resistance has been greatest to the, the new definition of sexuality. And, uh, and, and that means that you're ministering in a, in a different kind of battleground than we were ministering 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Now, what do you do in that kind of setting? Remember I said to you that your young people don't agree with you on this? What I mean by that is I, I, was, I was talking to a leader of a nationwide uh, college campus ministry that you would know of and that you would think highly of. And he said he had been invited to a conservative theological seminary by the faculty to talk to them about things that he was seeing in the students that were going to his campus ministry. And um, because many of those students end up in seminaries and the, and the seminary faculty wanted to be more clued in. This was, not, he did, he, this was not RTS, so I'm not talking about RTS, but it's another Bible-believing uh, conservative uh, evangelical seminary. And so he was talking to the faculty and, and they said, well, tell us some things about these students that are going to be coming to us. And he said, well, uh, thing number one is they, when, when you speak from the standpoint of a high view of Scripture when you affirm biblical inerrancy, they are going to be with you. They, they, are, they are inherently going to be, if not already in a knowing agreement with you, they are going to be persuadable because 
in their context, uh, their attitude is, if the Bible isn't true, why bother? And that was very encouraging to that faculty to hear. Yeah, we've, we've got young folks coming to our seminary that if, if not already rock solid on a high view of scripture, at least open to be persuaded on that because they've already done the math. You know, if, if, if it's not true, there, there are better things to do on Sunday morning. There are other ways to live in this life. Um, and then he said, okay, and I've got some more good news for you. Uh, when you talk to them about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they are going to be with you because they have already experienced so much brokenness in their lives and in their homes that they get it that they can't be good enough to earn God's love. And when they hear of God reaching out to them in grace before they ever respond back in faith, they are instinctively going to resonate that it has to be that way or none of us have any hope. And that, again, was very encouraging. I mean, these, are, these are evangelical seminary professors, and that, that's right in their wheelhouse. But then he said this, but when you start talking about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage, and you begin to say that... Um, that human sexuality is binary. We are, we are men and women, and there are not 58 different genders. There, there are two sexes. And that the only uh, appropriate place for sexuality to be expressed is marriage. And by marriage, I mean marriage between one man and one woman. And uh, same-sex attraction Though a, a real phenomenon that people experience um, sometimes from their earliest recollections can never be appropriately expressed in a same-sex sexual relationship. And um, transgenderism uh, is, is not an appropriate expression uh, for a faithful believer. When you say those things, they're not going to be with you. And they said, you got to be kidding. And he said, no, I'm not kidding at all. Um, they're, they're not going to argue with you. They're going to politely sit there, and they're probably not going to say anything, and they're going to disagree with you. Now, why? Well, I think for three reasons. One, whereas, Whereas there had never been a same-sex marriage in the history of the world until 17 years ago, they have lived in the world where that is the majority viewpoint. You know? I mean, if, if they're in college, they don't have a recollection when there was a time when this wasn't going on. Two... They have more relationships with same-sex attracted people than we ever thought we did. Now, we may well have had as many relationships as same-sex attracted with same-sex attracted people as they do, except those same-sex attracted people in our context would never have told us that. You know, when, when I, I went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and had a great experience there, the registrar of Covenant Seminary was same-sex attracted. A faithful guy who grew up in a Lutheran home 
never acted out on his urges, but I, I knew him four years before he ever admitted that to me. And it was right before I was getting ready to leave to go to, to graduate school. And he felt like, you know, I was a person that he could trust and who genuinely cared for him. But it took him four years to ever tell me about that. Uh, because in those days, you just didn't talk about that with people. In our day and age, a lot more people are out, even in our circles. And, and, and your young people think about that issue at a relational level at a way that my generation didn't have to wrestle with that, okay? The third reason is this. These young people see the hypocrisy of the church in terms of marital infidelity, unbiblical divorce, things of that nature, and they say, why is it that we are so hot to condemn same-sex attracted people for wanting to have a lifelong partner when we allow for all of these other unbiblical expressions of sexuality in the evangelical church? That, this generation of young people um, can smell hypocrisy 500 yards upwind. I mean, they can. They, they just, they smell hypocrisy. And for those reasons, they really just don't want to get in to this issue. But, uh, what, what do I say to that? You know, here's one thing. I, you may not know it, but a very interesting thing has happened as same-sex attraction and all those attendant cultural sexual issues have come to the fore in our culture and become more common and open. And that is more self-consciously same-sex attracted people are in evangelical Bible-believing churches than ever before and they want to live according to traditional Christian morality. And they're there not because you don't believe in traditional biblical morality, but because you do. That's why they're in your churches. I, I have had more than one same-sex attracted member in my congregation come to me and say, Pastor, I'm so thankful that you have stuck with the Bible on this. If you ever stray from the Bible on this, I'm leaving. Um, because I'm here, because I'm struggling with this, and I don't want to live out of accord with what the Bible clearly says. Wow. There's more of that than ever before. In fact, what's happening is a, a divide is happening on this issue. On the one side, there are growing numbers of same-sex attracted people from out of the realm of sort of generic evangelicalism who want to live according to biblical morality, and then there are growing, there's, a, there's a growing group of people who are same-sex attracted who are rejecting Christianity because of the Bible's teaching on sexual morality. It's, it's a fascinating phenomenon to watch. A number of years ago, I, was, um, I lurk a lot on the Internet just to kind of see what people are saying about things. 
And um, about 10 years ago, a, a, a conservative evangelical pastor had posted something on a fairly widely read website arguing a traditional Christian case like the EPC adopted at the last General Assembly on marriage and sexuality. I mean, it, 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 was, it was almost exactly the things that you adopted at the last General Assembly. And of course, what, when, when you do that, when you're an evangelical Christian and you do that somewhere on the web, what's going to happen? Your meta is going to blow up. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments posted on this site, most of them searingly critical, coming from same-sex attracted people who, who felt condemned because of the teaching of traditional biblical morality, just raging against this pastor. And of course, this was, this was the predominant argument for them. Interestingly, many of these people would have viewed themselves as religious. A lot of them would have viewed themselves as Christians, and many of them would be in various types of liberal uh, uh, Protestant-ish churches. And what they consistently were arguing is, you've misunderstood the Bible. The Bible does not condemn this. That, that's the Matthew Vines kind of argument. You know, we've just misunderstood the Bible all the years. This is the same as slavery. We misunderstood the Bible on slavery. We've also misunderstood the Bible on same-sex attraction and all the attendant sexual issues. And, and therefore, uh, you know, we just need to re-understand the Bible correctly. And if we do that, we'll realize that it does not condemn uh, these things. Interestingly, in the middle of that discussion came this calm, quiet voice who worked very, very carefully through each of the texts that the pastor had expounded and in the comments section affirmed over and over the Bible's teaching on traditional biblical morality. And of course, many of the voices on the site that were arguing against the pastor then started to rage against this commenter. And I, I watched him over a period of about four days as he carefully laid out an airtight case that the Bible taught that uh, same-sex sexuality uh, could not be expressed uh, if you were going to be faithful to what the Bible said about sex between a man and a woman in the context of a lifelong commitment in marriage. But at the end of that long argument, here's what he said. Having laid out the case, he said, it's very clear that the Bible condemns same-sex marriage and the expression of sexuality with others of the same sex. And that is why I reject Christianity. Fascinating. I, I had been suspecting that that was something that was motivating people for some time, but I had never seen it in, well, it wasn't in print, but it was at least on a website written down by somebody. And, and I have heard that argument over and over since then. So you, you have this phenomenon of people who are rejecting Christianity uh, because of what the Bible teaches on sexuality and ethics, and others who are in your churches because you teach the Bible's uh, teaching on sexual morality um, and, and ethics. So what do we do in this particular cultural moment in ministry? This, I think this issue raises larger issues about how we relate to the culture. Um, 
And, and, and I, I want to say a few things uh, about that as you minister in a, in a local congregation. One is um, being unclear on the truth in this area is, is not a winning strategy. Okay? Because you can't be unclear enough on this to attract the people who believe that if you condemn same-sex sexuality, uh, you are uh, at the same moral level of a white supremacist, okay? I mean, all it takes is one question, folks. I mean, the, the microphone is going to be put in, in, in your face sooner or later by somebody, even if it's in a private conversation, and you're going to have to, you know, say where you stand on this. So it's better to be upfront. I mean, I, I actually like to tell people, these are the five things you're going to hate about me. You know, and just get them out front. I mean, I'll do this in new members' classes. Let me tell you, just before I try and persuade you to join my church, let me tell you five things you're going to hate about me. You know, and just go through the most likely things that I think that they're going to be offended by. And what happens is people can be disarmed by our honesty. Okay. And then having been disarmed by our honesty, if you will combine that with tenacious love for the person. You know, it's, um, it, it, it is really, really hard to be an evangelical Christian who believes in biblical mor morality and continue relatively healthy relationships with friends who don't believe in traditional biblical morality and are living a same-sex lifestyle. I've, I've got a few of those friendships, and those friendships can be incredibly difficult because every time you affirm Christian biblical morality, it, it, it's, it's hurtful to them. They feel rejected. I was at a, at a reunion. I'm a Furman University graduate, and I was at a reunion for our college choir a few years ago, and one of my dearest friends... Uh, who graduated from Furman the same year that I graduated, has been in a same-sex relationship for 20 years now. And uh, we, were, we were both sent by our college choir director to go do a particular, we had to go pick up risers from McAllister Auditorium and bring them back to the place where we were rehearsing. And as we were riding down the road, he, he was telling me about his husband and their son. And I was, I was in the passenger seat, and he was in the driver's seat, and I was listening. He showed me pictures, and uh, we had a conversation. And, um, you know, all the while I was wondering, I wonder how much he knows about what I think about this. Well, he, I, it didn't take long, uh, because we're both on Facebook, and it's amazing how much of, about yourself you let people know on Facebook. And uh, he knew what I thought about these things and he raised the issue himself you know awkward moment and uh, we talked about that for a little while and then he said I, I just don't understand how believing what you believe you can regard me like you do and show care and concern for me like you do I don't understand that and I said guy it's because I love you you're my friend you've always been my friend and I'm always going to love you and I'm always going to care about you. And I mean, this, and this guy has so much to offer. He's a brilliant Shakespearean actor. I, I love to learn from him on Shakespeare and theater and acting and things of this nature. He knows so much. 
the, the people that are going to win the day in our culture reaching out are the people that stand firm in truth but are tenacious in love. It's going to be the truth in love people that win at the local level as we reach out in this culture. And I don't expect all the engagements to be wins. I mean, we're going to lose some of these. You know, that not every friendship is going to be like that weird friendship that I have with Guy. Um, you know, not many, not, not every friendship with, with same-sex attractive people that don't embrace traditional biblical teaching is going to be able to stand up. But it's very, very hard for people to dismiss genuine Christian love. You know, Francis Schaeffer 50 years ago said, love is the ultimate apologetic. There is no argument against love, you know. So somebody can be mad at you and somebody can be offended by what you believe, but it's really, really hard for them to totally hate your guts and dismiss you when they see you loving them. I mean, and, and I mean by that not just sort of having feelings of sentimentality towards them, but genuinely caring about their well-being. And if, if we'll adopt the, 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 um, the, the posture to the world... When, when the world condemns us for our views on ethics, you can't hate me enough to stop me loving you. If, 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 that, if that will be our posture, you cannot hate me enough to stop me genuinely being concerned about your flourishing, about your well-being, um, and showing in tangible, ordinary, unexciting ways the fact that I really care about you. And I, I, I think that it will be modeling that, and that's especially important for our generation, modeling that, that will be hugely persuasive on the younger generation. Because the, the, the younger generation, all they see on this is whenever this issue is raised, it looks to them like moral majority stuff from the 1970s. Oh, you're fighting the culture war again. I'm not interested. We've lost the culture war. I'm not, I'm not interested in fighting the culture war. What I'm interested in is in discipling the church and the church being distinct from the world and people coming to faith in Christ. So I'm not trying to fight a culture war, but even raising the issue looks like you're wanting to be a culture warrior. So how do you handle that? You've got to lead with love and stand on the truth. Don't move on the truth. Stay right where you are on the truth. But lead with love. And, you know, you can, you can do that in some, some ways that would surprise people. You know, so, so for instance, what if, what if the local evangelical congregations were seen to be the congregations most concerned about the well-being of people, say, in a given community who were impacted by AIDS and HIV. I mean, you don't have to affirm their lifestyle to be concerned about the consequences and effect of sin and seek their well-being in that area. The Catholics have been particularly good at this. Have you noticed that? Um, and, and the Catholics will hang in there on this until they're kicked out of their jobs. You remember in Chicago, just a few years ago, the, the Roman Catholics had the biggest ministry to AIDS patients in Chicago. But then what happened? 
Well, somebody figured out that the Catholic Church doesn't believe that same-sex marriage is right. Wow, you know, how did you miss that? <laughs> and what did they do? They said, therefore, the Roman Catholics can no longer be involved in the AIDS ministry because that's, you know, that's discriminatory for you to think that. But, you know, bless their hearts, the Roman Catholics hung in there until they weren't allowed to. Well, what if we thought about ways that we could express tangible care, concern, and love for people who are living in ways that we don't believe that the Bible endorses and in ways that in fact are self-destructive while at the same time holding our convictions on the truth and explaining why it matters. Uh, this, I think, will confuse the culture and give you a shot at being heard, but it will also help your young people see that there is a way to stand on truth without hating people. You see, the whole, the whole cultural narrative right now is, if you don't agree with this, you hate people. So we've, we've got to break that narrative. And the, you can't talk your way out of that narrative. You've got to show your way out of that narrative. Um, and, and, and just show, no, this is actually not a hate thing. Interestingly enough, one of the ways that you can show this is through the discipleship of faithful same-sex attracted members. Um, who want to live godly Christian lives. T two, of, two, of my, uh, two, two of the men that I admire most in ministry are uh, Vaughn Roberts of St. Ebb's Church in Oxford, England, and uh, Sam Alberry, who is now with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, but is also an Anglican minister. Both Vaughn and um, Sam are same-sex attracted. And they are faithful, celibate Christians. And they, they actually, they operate a ministry called Living Out. Um, you can go to livingout.org, I think, is their website. Helping same-sex attracted people live faithfully in accordance with the Bible. And Sam and Vaughn are incredibly persuasive when they speak on this issue. Why? It, it's evident that they don't hate same-sex attracted people. <laughs> they are ones. And, and they deeply care about people who are same-sex attracted, and yet they want to foster what the Bible teaches about this. And look, you, if, if your church is larger than 100, they're there in your congregation. You know, if you've got a church more than 100, you've got four of them. They just hadn't told you yet. And if, if you can convey from the pulpit and in your pastoral care um, that there's no secret in your closet that can keep me from loving you as your pastor. There's no secret in your closet that can keep me from loving you. So that you garner the kind of, of trust from those congregants those folks, discipled, can become our greatest weapon in this particular engagement uh, with, with the culture. And I also want to say that same-sex attracted Christians that are living faithfully, they face more bullying than any same-sex attracted individual faces because they're, they're viewed 
by same-sex attracted people who want to act out on this as they're, they're repressing their true self and they are traitors to the cause and uh, they're simply trying to conform to this horrible Iron Age, uh, you know, binary, um, uh, non-rational, superstitious belief of Christianity. And so if, if you will support those folks, minister to those folks, and then show tangible, evident Christian love while standing on the truth, we've got a shot to reach the culture on this. And I think it's a good model for us as we go into a time where I think we need to expect in the Western world for the, you know, for the foreseeable future, we're not going to be an increasing majority of the culture. We're going to be probably, and we're either going to maintain our present minority or shrink a little bit. You know, what, what's happening right now in the United States is Catholicism is shrinking. By the way, Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church is shrinking around the world. Um, if you ever ask yourself, why did the, uh, the first South American Pope, who is from Argentina, make his first papal visit to Brazil? in South America. Now, Argentinians don't like Brazilians and Brazilians return the favor, okay? They don't like one another. So why is an Argentinian pope making his first visit to Brazil? Because Brazil is on the verge of becoming the first country since the Protestant Reformation to flip from Catholicism to Protestantism. And, and Pope Francis knows it. Catholicism finally for the first time in history is not translating to the next generation. And, and so Roman Catholicism is about to face worldwide collapse. So is Eastern Orthodoxy. Protestant liberalism is dying even faster. You know, you and I will live to see the day when the last living PCUSA member dies. And when the last Episcopal Church USA uh, congregation closes its doors. I mean, Protestant liberalism is dying at a breathtaking rate. When RTS started, Princeton Theological Seminary was 500 times the size of RTS. Today, we're four times the size of Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, that, that's 50 years, folks. I mean, the, you, know, you can't even put that on a chart. I don't have a wall big enough uh, for that to show you that on a chart. Protestant liberalism is in collapse. Evangelicalism is shrinking in our culture, but, you know, in all this immigration that everybody's all worried about, Asian and Hispanic immigration may well save Christianity in America. <laughs> okay? So, go Asian and, and uh, you know, Christian immigration. You know, I mean, in 2055, the United States is going to be plurality Asian. That is, there are going to be more Asians than any other ethnicity. 2055. Um, and, and Asians are not as secular as, as folks like us tend to be. And so, uh, you know, it, who knows? We, you know, we may have a shot at sort of catching up again down the road. But right now, we're probably going to continue in a cultural minority position. How do you operate that? In, in that context, you stand firm on truth 
and you lead with love. And, you know, that's, that's actually been a strength of the EPC from the beginning. So I think you're well positioned to be able to reach out in this setting. And you're needed right now. Um, the Presbyterians, we're small compared to the larger population, but Presbyterians have always punched above our weight class. That is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take that many of us to have a larger cultural impact. So don't, you know, don't think we have to have a gazillion of us to have a, a big impact. Now, be, be thankful, down, down in Brazil, you're, you're connected to the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. I was there with Jeff Jeremiah uh, at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. We were out looking at the world's largest pecan tree together uh, in, in Natal, Brazil, uh, about 18 months ago. And did you, you know the largest Presbyterian church in the Western Hemisphere is the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. And they are evangelical, inerrantist, Bible-believing Presbyterians. And there are 1.2 million of them. And they're growing. And they have huge cultural influence in, in Brazil. So there, you know, there are places where the Reformed faith and Presbyterianism are, are flourishing um, uh, Africa, there are 9 million Presbyterians in the Presbyter uh, Presbyterian Church of East Africa. You know, a third of Korea is Presbyterian. Um, the Reformed faith is exploding in Indonesia and China. Um, three months ago, I had a group of 11 housework networks in China come to me and say, we want to start the Presbyterian Church of China. Would you help us write a book of church order? Two million. Okay, that's like six times the size of the PCA, <laughs> you know, China, for crying out loud. So the Lord's doing a lot of stuff all over the world. Don't be discouraged about that. But here, we don't have to be big to make a big impact. So that's my word to you. Be encouraged in the local setting. Lead with love. Stand on the truth. And let, let the Lord use his faithful, your faithfulness how he wants to use it. 